3: I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, The Latest. Today, we bring you the latest military and diplomatic updates from the invasion of Ukraine, and we analyse the rise of Ukraine's maritime drone force that's challenging the Russian fleet in the Black Sea.
1: This
0: hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure.
3: Putin's war in Ukraine... Has destabilized energy markets
4: the world over. Nobody's going to break us.
1: We're strong.
4: We're Ukrainians.
3: Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 28th of November, day 278, and today I'm joined by our Associate Editor, Dominic Nichols our senior foreign correspondent, Roland Oliphant, and our assistant comment editor, Francis Turnley. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine.
2: Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. It has been a fairly static uh, weekend. That's partly on account of the terrible weather uh, across Ukraine. It's still very, very wet, um, which is turning the mud into just a sticky, gloopy um, tank-swallowing tank, uh, um, mess. Um, wheeled vehicles virtually unusable um, movement on foot extremely difficult we've seen images there's many many images on social media of of trenches filling up with water I mean it's just just awful that is likely to freeze in the next few or starting in the next few days if it's not it's frozen already in in uh, in some areas many areas but it's likely to be widespread across the whole country uh, in the next few days that well, it will take some some time to freeze, but then that should allow some form of maneuver if if either side were to be in a position to try it to try and try and actually you know physically drive across the across the area and try and have any kind of military effect but in the uh, until that happens we 've seen so over the weekend heads on down the south is being hit repeatedly by russian artillery, artillery from across the river there were fifty four strikes on Sunday alone. Um, no casualty figures seen from that, but 10 civilians were killed last Thursday in the city. This is multiple rocket launches, the BM-21 Grad rocket launches that Russia is using there. Um, in military terms, that would just be called harassment fire. It doesn't actually achieve anything except to just um, it tries to throw your opponent off. Off their off balance, basically, and out of uh, to break up any plans they have. I mean, I'm I'm trying not to say it's just nuisance fire, but that effectively is what it is on a, on a large scale. It's just it's just there to constantly um, try and uh, try and stop you doing what what whatever you'd like. You know, try and put any any military plans together. It doesn't actually affect anything in a in a great scheme of things. And in this particular instance, firing it against a city. All it's doing is is killing civilians, which is, uh, you know, all we've seen from Russia just lately. As President Zelensky said in his nightly address last night, he's bracing the country for more more such attacks. Elsewhere, and the Donbass front, it is um, it's largely static except for around the around the town of Bakhmut, which we know Russia has put a, a lot of effort into trying to take over recent weeks. They've put the, the so the Wagner group, the mercenary group, is there. We think in in some numbers, some low hundreds of numbers, we believe. Um, We think that the Vagoda group there has been reinforced with recently mobilised Russian soldiers and some of the troops that are coming out of Hezon. Uh, Ukraine, again, there's reasonably credible reporting that Ukraine... Um, sorry, not reason. Because this is from the New York Times. So yeah, incredible reporting from the New York Times saying that that Ukraine has been reinforcing the area with special forces and um, territorial defense fighters. So the kind of local defense fighters. So not um, uh, not your sort of Premier League infantry, but still still good good fighters um, fighting for their local areas. Are so very highly motivated. So there's a there's a big fight around Bakhmut at the moment. We thought that was going to happen. We thought when, when it was assessed that uh, up to half of the Russian soldiers that got across the river from Hezon uh, were going to be redeployed. We thought they were going to go up into the into the Donbass to try and shore up that that, uh, that, that increasingly pressurised front there. Uh, and, um, well, I mean, they'd hoped to try and make some advances, but they, there doesn't seem to be any sign of that. I think the most they can do is is very, very local, I mean, a few hundred metres, if that, uh, per week, and, and there's no real evidence of that happening in any widespread um, manner uh, so this this seems to be fitting in with the pattern that we've seen however uh, pushing pressing against that that point um ukraine are reinforcing their area there with with uh, with special forces um just separately there was a really interesting there's a few other bits and pieces of, of the news but i just want to draw your attention to a good thread on twitter by jack watling who's um who's one of the land warfare specialists at uh, at Rusi and uh, not not just land warfare clearly but he's he speaks very very he, he's hugely hugely informed on on this and and in turn he he informs others up to and including governments i i believe i don't know for a fact but uh, that's my suspicion um and he's just talking about what winter war is um making some 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 logical deductions but very sensible deductions from um from what we what we know and what we observe, and he's basically saying things like, um, we've seen how drones have become have become used and and the innovation with, around drones in this uh, uh, since February the twenty fourth. So the obvious factor is that that in winter there's very little foliage because you know all, all the leaves drop off the trees, so you are much more visible um, at the ground level. So that means you got to you've got to stay low where it's wet and cold and muddy and, and yucky. So it really comes down to the personal administration of the individual soldiers and 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 units or small-scale units, company, platoon, companies, and even battalions, really. But but very low-level warfare, separating dry and wet kit and this kind of thing, making sure you're sleeping well and sleeping dry, making sure you're getting food. Um, now, we know Ukraine had been fighting for years through through many many winters in in the Donbass, holding the line there. Not quite the same for Russia. Obviously, the it was the. Luhansk and Donetsk so-called People's Republics who are holding the line there so the, the Russian troops that are there um, uh, have not fought through any, any great winters in this campaign and of course they've been largely uh, worn down so there's many more mobilized people there that are going to suffer um, we know their kit and their training is not is not as it should be. So there, um, Jack makes the point that these guys are going to are going to tend to huddle together um, in large large groups, which can then be targeted. Then there's, there's not going to be much offensive spirit. So keeping these guys going, keeping them alive, and in any kind of defensive posture is going to be a real effort. Trying to expect any sort of offensive spirit from them is just, I think, probably beyond what they're capable of. And Jack is suggesting that what Ukraine should concentrate on over the winter is skirmishing just small scale raids to keep russians in position to stop them coming back out of the line to um uh, to rest recover dry out etc etc to keep them fighting in position prevent the rotation of any units so you get better better equipped better trained more motivated units in there Um, and he also makes a point about how until the ground freezes properly hardens then any logistics are going to be um very much fixed to roads which again are known, targetable and and you can plan on that. So just some very interesting um, deductions that Jack Watling makes there about winter war. Uh, well worth a read on Twitter. A few other bits and pieces to go, but i'll um, I'll just take a little a little breather. Thanks. Very
3: much for that, Dom. Francis, can I go to you? There's an awful lot, as Dom said, that's going on.
1: Thanks, David. And good afternoon, everyone. The lines may have been static, but certainly in many other areas of this conflict, it hasn't been over the weekend. And I'll start with an example, if any further examples were needed of how this war is having much broader ramifications than just those that we're seeing in Ukraine itself. It's a story of Putin's energy weapon, that's how it's been dubbed by The Economist, which is effectively his strategy on denying Europe uh, energy, oil, gas, and the consequences of that. Now, of course, we've talked about those consequences many times in recent months. But when you actually crunch the numbers, which is what The Economists have done, it's it's quite shocking reading. So they've modelled that there will be as many, if not more people who will die as a consequence of the energy war than of those who've actually already been killed in the battlefield of Ukraine itself. So we've talked about in the past the estimated battlefield deaths in the war are around 60,000, up to 30,000 for Russia, 30,000 for Ukraine. I think those numbers are low. I think they're low for the Russian losses, but regardless, we know those are are, are the minimum. And the economist modelling has said that the effect of soaring electricity prices on deaths during the winter believe that the current cost of energy will likely lead to an extra one hundred and forty seven thousand deaths if this is a typical winter in Europe. If it's a particularly harsh winter, then that could rise to one hundred and eighty five thousand. But even if it's just a mild winter, it would still be seventy nine thousand. So very, very high numbers indeed. Some countries are more severely affected than others. In Italy, which has an older population, of course, and particularly high electricity prices, it's expected that they would suffer the most extra deaths. Also in Estonia and Finland, it was expected there would be extra deaths as well uh, than expected. Things are expected to be less severe in Britain and France, which have introduced price caps, um, but and, and also in Austria. But it's not a... A good picture. Um, however, you crunch these numbers, there is increased deaths as a consequence of this energy front. And so. I think when you see it in those terms, you can see why there's been so much concern about this. These are the kind of numbers that no doubt have been being talked about behind closed doors in Whitehall and other government administrations for some time. So you can see why this has been a particular concern. But, and I think it's important to end with something a little bit more positive, um, the energy front is expected to not be as severe as was feared when it all began uh, back in February. and, And obviously the energy consequences became apparent around the March, April time there is now expectation that the market has adapted more that prices will be lower and consequences that there will be fewer people who will you know, f- freeze or go cold in their, in their homes. So um, that is a positive, but nonetheless even even with that you can see the consequences of this when you actually extrapolate that across the continent. Just staying on the energy theme very briefly, I've talked a lot about Zaporizhia recently and uh, just an important update I think on this because there was a little bit of speculation over the weekend that the nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia had been uh, abandoned by the Russians or was about to be abandoned by the Russians, but this has been vehemently denied by the Russian administration who are in control of the Eritrea they're saying that the media are actively spreading fakes that Russia is allegedly planning to withdraw and leave the plant this information is not true so as far as we know uh, Zaporizhia is still under the control of the Russians but uh, a lot of speculation over the weekend so I thought it was important for you just to clarify that
3: Thanks, uh, Francis. We'll come back to Dom just quickly and then back to you before we bring in uh, Roland. So, Dom, you said you, you've got a few more things to talk us through. Uh, what else is there? What have you been looking at?
2: Yeah, so quickly, uh, Belarus, Foreign Minister of Belarus, Vladimir Makai. He's been, well, he was killed um, over the weekend. Suspected poisoning, suspected assassination. I, I say, I mean, this is all suspected. None of this is, is confirmed. This is this is uh, considered speculation from Looking at a number of sources, but it, it is suggested that this guy, who was uh, President Lukashenko's confidant, very close, a very close ally of uh, Belarus President Lukashenko, there were suggestions that he had been uh, under Lukashenko's uh, direction. Uh, He'd been charged with negotiating with the US and European countries to soften their positions towards Belarus. Uh, So whilst on the one hand, Lukashenko would be saying all the right things to Putin and Russia and he's hosting Russian, uh, well, allowing, if he had a choice, allowing Russian soldiers and military units to be on Belarusian soil, Russian air force to fly from Belarus, missiles to be fired from Belarus, actually as we've long suggested on the pod we think lukashenko as many others have, have speculated he's he's pretty lukewarm about all this uh and now there's this suggestion that the foreign minister was actually behind the scenes reaching out to uh, to exter- to the west basically to external partners trying to um trying to explain their position and trying to seek a a softening towards belarus um anyway he was uh it's not confirmed yet, but almost certainly been killed, and it's, the suspicion was poisoning. There are reports that Lukashenko has ordered his cooks and servants and guards to all be replaced after the um, after the sudden death of this guy. Uh, so it look, looks like, and it's being interpreted as a as a message from Russia, from Putin to Lukashenko, to say, "Look, get back in line. Don't be going off doing your own. Don't cutting your own deals. You know, you're you're part of uh, you're part of this." Um, so one to watch there, and secondly. Uh, Ten days ago, um, from the Vatican, Pope Francis said that the Vatican was ready to do anything possible to mediate the conflict, put an end to the war between Russia and Ukraine. This is in an interview with the uh, La Stampa, an Italian daily uh, newspaper there. However, the Kremlin said today um, has said that they'd love it. They'd love they'd love the, the um the Vatican to mediate, um, but oh, those pesky Ukrainians again! It's Ukrainians, Ukraine's stance that uh, that prevents this. And um, whilst the Vatican might offer to be a negotiating platform, Kyiv's position has made this impossible. I mean, we know this is all part of the game. Obviously, we know that it's it's not going well on the battlefield at all. Um, all that Russia's got at the moment is the is the energy terror war against Ukrainian civilians. Um, so they're doing whatever they can. All this talk of negotiation is probably in, in one of those, you know, even a stop clock tells the correct time twice a day. Actually, they're probably telling the truth. You now, Russia right now would love negotiations. They would love the lines to be uh, literally and figuratively frozen where they are so that they can see through the winter, build up, try and build up their, their forces to, to go again in the in the spring. Of course, they want negotiations. There. Of course, they want Ukraine to stop stop pushing them back so you know they've they've leapt on this suggestion from the the vatican um and saying yep they're up for mediations it's just those pesky ukrainians that that keep that keep the keeping the fighting going i mean you you know my opinion i've said this before It, it is not in ukraine's best interest right now i don't think to stop and try and enter negotiations they they have the battlefield advantages they need to keep going the time for negotiation is when you're You know, many, many months down the line, I would I would suggest when um, uh, when they're in a much, much stronger position, they are already in a strong position, Kiev, I would suggest. But they need to be in a much stronger position and it would suit Russia right now for everything to stop and for negotiations to take place. So interesting there that um, uh, well, sorry, interesting, but not not surprising that the Kremlin are welcoming this uh, this this overture from the from the Vatican and saying it's it's only those pesky Ukrainians that still want to keep fighting.
3: Thanks, Tom. Just a couple more things I think we should cover before we go to uh, Roland and his piece on Ukraine's marine drone warfare. Francis, uh, there's been some criticism for the German government for failing to act fast enough to bolster
1: its army. Can you can you talk us through this story? It's quite, a, quite an interesting one. Well, yes, of course, Germany's been a key focus for us ever since the war began very, very prominent partner in all of this of what's going on in the European Union at the moment has been quite heavily criticised over the course of the war for being too hesitant to provide military support early on and some have said that it's now backtracking on some of the commitments that it made back at the beginning of the war. Regular listeners who've been with us since the beginning will recall that Olaf Scholz made a really big pledge that he would be funding considerably more uh, towards the armed forces. I think a further £100 was what he offered And as you say, David, there's been quite considerable criticism over the weekend um, from within Germany itself for failing to act fast enough to bolster its army following these announcements that happened after the launch of the war. And indeed, some politicians in Germany have actually called on uh, or remarked that Olaf Scholz is is breaking his promises made to the country's soldiers nearly a year ago. So, as I say, three days after Russia invaded Ukraine, there was further pledges about 86 billion pounds worth of extra spending on the Bundeswehr. Um, it declared the start of a new era in which Germany would do everything it takes to defend NATO's borders. Yet critics are saying that nine months later, not a cent of that money has yet been spent, leaving the army less capable of fighting a war than it was before the invasion. I say that's, that's the argument. Um, one prominent politician who's waded in on this, who's uh, done an interview with us, is the deputy head of the conservative CDU in the Bundestag. And I'll quote from them directly. The defence ministry is still working like a German bureaucracy in terms of deepest peace, but it needs to be put on a war footing. Goes on. Munitions should have been bought by the summer at the latest. We are now at our limit in terms of meeting our NATO obligations. Munitions could have been ordered a long time ago. I've been told by arms companies that they offered munitions, but the government simply didn't order. So, as I say, David, quite an interesting story, this, in the context of all of the complicated discussions happening behind closed doors about Germany's role. I spoke about that in detail at the end of the podcast last week, so I would listen to uh, to that if people uh, want to go into a little bit more details to the sort of cultural and political tensions within the country as to why uh, some did believe that Germany has this rather unusual stance or strange stance with regards to the war when it's actually in a very, very um, prominent position in order to be able to assist. And just one other story in the political um, role, if I may, um, and I know that Don will have some thoughts on this later on as well, but um, UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is vowing to maintain military aid to Ukraine in a speech this afternoon. He's going to promise to increase aid to Ukraine next year and to confront international competitors, not to With grand rhetoric, but with robust pragmatism I mean I think that's a quintessential um uh, Rishi Sunak trait is he sees himself very much I think as a an effective administrator a sort of technocrat as opposed to an ideologue um in contrast to his predecessor Liz Truss indeed of course as I've spoken about at length on the podcast in the past Rishi Sunak is often seen as being rather less hawkish than Liz Truss on uh Ukraine but actually he has been um, more robust I think than many people expected um he's made some very very strong remarks indeed um Listeners will recall that um, he was meant to be having a meeting with President Xi at uh, the Bali summit of the G20 last week. But actually, um, that did not go ahead in the end, we believe, because uh, China, you know, were angry with some of the remarks that he had made. London has also banned Chinese made security cameras from sensitive government buildings as well. This has been an ongoing theme under Rishi Sunak. He's very sceptical of um, uh, Chinese investment in Britain. And so there's been a bit of a backpedaling on British foreign policy with regard to China in, in recent months as a consequence of what's been going on in the war. But I'll just w- read one more quote from him and then uh, we can go over to Roland. So he says, under my leadership, we won't choose the status quo. We will do things differently and i should say that this is Rishi sunak's first major foreign policy speech so i think we can expect a few more goodies if that's the right way of phrasing it in the speech later on
3: well thank you very much uh, for that francis
1: roland oliphant can we go to you you've written
3: uh, an absolutely fascinating piece for the telegraph it's on the website Uh, for people listening you can go to read it it's called how ukraine's drone navy is outsmarting russia's superior black sea forces Roland, kind of difficult to know where to begin with this, so can we ask you first of all, why did you decide to write about this? What what interested you about this story?
4: Um, I wrote about it because my editor told me to, to be absolutely frank. Uh, I'm not really a a, a sea salty kind of man, but there's there's been a lot of, you know, it's one of these funny little weapon systems, um, funny little weapon systems, one of these many things that pop up in the war that make people sit up and pay attention and go, hold on, what's going on there? You know, we haven't seen this before. Have an explanation. Um, So we we, we thought kind of why not have a look at the um, have a look at these these funny little boats um, that have kind of become quite prominent over the past month, basically.
3: And what did you find? I mean, you came to this as a, as a non-specialist. So, what's what's the story you've ended up telling?
4: Okay, so to put it in in historical context, the historical context being the past um, month or so, um, kind of about a month or so ago, uh, this this strange black thing that looked like a speedboat without a seat in it washed up um, on the headland just to the west of Sevastopol in Crimea. Uh, the Russians found it. It was clearly Um, a kind of remote-controlled boat, which which the Russians assumed was being operated by the Ukrainians. Um, They put out photographs of it, um, and then they detonated it because it was found to be carrying an explosive device. They had to get rid of it. Um, And then things were quiet for a couple of weeks. And then about two weeks after that, October um, 29th, I think, um, suddenly... Uh, there were a series of massive explosions in Sevastopol Harbour um, overhead, and it turned out um, about, we think about six or seven, we're not quite sure on the numbers of these these little things, had, um, had attacked shipping outside. And we think, this is the important thing, actually, two of them, we think, got into Sevastopol Harbour um uh we think they damaged at least two boats um one is a minesweeper the other is a frigate called the um admiral, Mak- admiral makarov um i think um the russians acknowledged some damage to a bit of port infrastructure as well um they said it was minimal um so that was that that really made people sit up and take notice um and then 18th of November, there was another mysterious blast in Novorossiysk, which is Russia's other big port on the Black Sea, and that is over in Russia proper um, in Krasnoyarsk region. It should have been well out of range of anything the Ukrainians could do, and the speculation is, once again, the Ukrainians managed to get one of these radio-controlled speedboats carrying a bomb um, into that harbour. And this is, um, you know, it's it's interesting for a couple of reasons. Just in the context of this war, of course, Russia went into this war as the absolute naval supremo indisputed um control of the black sea um, ukraine didn't have anything that could really contest russia's control they had a few speed I and mean, ukraine lo- lost most of its navy uh, during the annexation of crimea in 2014 um, even those boats it lost then were not in great condition um it it did, did try to build up these little fast gunboats um, as a kind of alternative. Most of them were lost uh, when, when Russia took the, the Azov Sea around Mariupol and Berdyansk early in the war. Um, so Ukraine's really been on the back foot, um, was meant to be on the back foot um, in the naval war. Um, but they keep on pulling out these little surprises. You know, They, 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 they managed to uh, sink the Moskva. Um, early in the war with a with a with a missile strike. Um, and now they've found this this other workaround, um, these little things which are suddenly making things very, very scary for the Russians.
3: Roland, do we have any sense of how these uh, drone these drone boats I don't know, we don't know quite what you want to call them, these let's call them these maritime drones. Do we have a sense of how they actually work? What what's on them? How how do they how how do you direct them?
4: I'll do that before we get into that um because I did have these comments from naval types about the nomenclature uh, the, the the what we should call them. They so military types don't like saying drone because they think it suggests that there is no human in the kill chain anywhere and that you're talking about autonomous killer robots from Terminator. They like to say unmanned surface vehicle. Um, although I did speak to a retired Royal Navy commander who said, No one cares, call it a drone. Um but that is what what the um, you know the professional military types like to say unmanned surface vehicle uh, to you and me it's a, it's a radio controlled drone a boat that goes on water um, how do they work um, it, it, some things are a mystery so um, there's, a, there's a very good independent naval analyst um, called H I Saturn you can look up his blog um, I spoke to him for this piece really informative guy um, so he went through the the images the Russians released images the Ukrainians released of their remarkable kind of you know, daring strike on Siverstopper with the machine gun rounds kind of sending up plumes of sea as they drive this thing towards, towards the, the grey hulk of a battleship on the horizon. Um, uh, he thinks that the propulsion system is a commercially built um, kind of water jet from a, a jet ski. Um, by a Canadian company called sea um, oh, Do, I think it is. So this is a top-of-the-range kind of jet ski. Right? Um, you'd have to be quite a rich kind of jet ski dude to, to get into these. I'm not a, a kind of jet ski kind of man. Um, but, but these are things that are available on the commercial market. Um, could easily have been bought. I don't know. I don't know. How do you buy a jet ski? On mail order in a jet ski shop. Um, so adaptation of pure civilian technology for the propulsion. Um, they've got a little kind of tower about well, toward towards the stern, which we think is a radio control um link. Um it might be Starlink. Um we don't know. I mean we know the, the Russian, sorry, the Ukrainian military has made extensive use of Starlink on land. Um it might make sense to use Starlink as the you know the the internet communications to make these things run, um, but we don't have confirmation of that. Uh then further forward you've got a little tower with a camera on it, um, which feeds uh, a live feed back to the operator onshore um and then in the in the main hull you've got you've got an explosive charge we're not sure quite how big that is um they, given that we don't think they did manage to sink any of these ships probably not that big um and on the prow, right on the point of the boat um two detonators which look like they're just ordinary detonators from uh soviet designed um aerial bombs basically so so quite simple Um, and and the way it seems to work is they're put to sea they're guided remotely um, they try and get as close as possible under cover of darkness very low in the water very difficult to detect by radar um, and then they drive as as you know as quickly as they can in as many numbers as they can muster to overwhelm uh, the defenses towards the target
3: and what do you have a sense of what the russians are doing to try and counter this how how have they evolved their defensive tactics or or the fortifications or, or whatever you know what wh- the ukrainians have clearly got one foot in front in this arms race on the sea how, how are the russians trying to counter them
4: well the russians changed their uh, the, their defensive procedures at sevastopol and Novorossiysk quite quickly after this so sevastopol harbour it, it's basically a fjord it's a very long narrow rocky inlet and the, the the city of sevastopol is built around this and off that inlet are other inlets um you've been to Istanbul and, you know, the golden horn, it looks a bit like that. Um, so there is a boom across that narrow harbour entrance, um, which theoretically these things shouldn't have been able to get across. So they've changed their procedure there. They're, they're making it, you know, being much more careful about how often they open that, um, when they close it, when ships go up to sea, they have to have small craft protection. Um, so there's a screen uh, to prevent these things from coming in. Interestingly, in the footage, that we saw um that the the ukrainians released of this this attack on Sevastopol, you could see a helicopter um circling that was clearly trying to target um these drones as they were coming in now i spoke to a um former royal navy captain who's taken part in uh, what well, a he was uh, he was involved in a lot of exercises kind of working out what to do if you face this kind of attack and he did talk a lot about having helicopters up there because they've got to see them coming um so you the russians obviously trying to do the same thing um but the kind of important point there i think is uh this uh, this captain said to me look um the, the problem with this is that you've really got to be on top of your game right you've got to be very highly trained for it and you need intelligence you need air cover to know they're coming um, and then you need really really modern um kind of automated weapons." which are able to fix onto multiple moving targets in in very short succession um, to to defeat threats like this. Um, And we know that the Royal Navy and the US Navy have been thinking about this for a long time because we think that Iran has got a lot of these things and has been building up a stockpile of them to use in the event of a great big, you know, if there is a showdown in the Gulf, we think that's what Iran will try to do. The Royal Navy and the United States Navy have been training for this for a long time. We don't think the Russians have been. This is a new thing for the Russians. Um, and they're going to have a very, very steep learning curve um, to try and, and, and find a way uh, to cope with this new threat. But it's a very, very difficult threat. Um, I mean, naval professionals are quite clear about this. This is a this is a real issue um, for surface navies around the world and will be in future.
3: Thank you very much for that, Roland. Dom, can I bring you in here? You've been listening to all of this and you know you're a sort of resident military type, I think. What are your thoughts and comments on this?
2: Resident military type. We'll be having words later, David. Yeah, so I think this is really interesting. We need to just take a little pause because there's been a lot of chat, certainly since these since these uh, drones were first seen, uncrewed service vessels, whatever you want to call them, these these boats um, were seen. A lot of people say, oh, this is a new model of warfare. This is the future. This is how it's going to be from now on. We've got to be really careful about about making these kind of claims. Firstly, because... Um, we don't know how good they are. And secondly, it's not new. I mean, you can go back to fire ships if you want to. You can go back to some of the activities in the Second World War. I mean, this, this sort of stuff um, is not new. This tactic is not new. Now, I will be convinced that it is a new model of warfare when I see the effect. And the effect is um, sinking ships, basically. On the one hand, they, ha- they already have had an effect. They've penned in... The Russian Black Sea fleet into Sevastopol and elsewhere. Um, they have um, forced w- those ships that did go out into the Black Sea to be escorted by um, by other by fast, um, basically fast, in- fast speedboats. Effectively, the fast inshore attack craft is the is the military term, if, if I'm allowed, to use military terms, uh, fast inshore attack craft that basically ex- escorting these boats with heavy machine guns on to to shoot these drones. Um, So it's caused the Russians to change tactics. But hey, that's that's warfare. That's what that's what happens. The enemy come up with something. You come up with something to counter it. That's the cat and mouse of warfare. So I'm yet to be convinced so far that this is a new model of warfare. Then the drone itself. I mean, um, Roland talks about the, the footage that's still out there. You can easily find it on social media of the, the Russian helicopters, MI-8 or 17. I can't remember which one. Can't really see the tailrace to tell which one it is. Sorry, getting a bit wonkish again. But um, there's, a, there's a Russian helicopter shooting at this thing and missing. Hence, it goes in. But equally, we don't know how many they launched and, and whether or not that helicopter shot five of the six that went in or 10 of the 20 or however many. So, so we don't know how effective it was. But equally, until these until these drones have some kind of protection themselves that can shoot down helicopters, there's nothing to stop that helicopter going and hovering a few feet away and 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 just what well, just blasting it from, you know, from ten feet. So, because they didn't know what it was, this helicopter was flying around. It didn't come very close, and even though the rounds you could see landing were were fairly close, and like I could say maybe they sunk some of the other drones that went in. We don't know, but there's no need for that helicopter to to hold off. So they're probably unlikely to make that mistake again. So I come back to what is the effect of of this tactic? And until I see much more than penning the, uh, the or, or forcing the Russians to change their tactics, until I see much more than that, i.e. until I see boats being sunk and ships being sunk, um, then I refuse to believe that this is a new form of warfare. Um now, what it might do, it might have its moment coming up in the, in the next few days, because there's a report this morning from the Ukrainian military saying that they suspect that a, a Russian ship has set, has gone to sea in the, in the Black Sea fleet, capable of firing cruise missiles as part of the latest wave. They're expecting another wave of attacks on the energy grid. Um, Natalia Gomenyuk, a spokeswoman for the Ukrainian military, said that this uh, the ship's gone to sea, and uh, it's going to be armed with caliber cruise missiles, and and it's going to be going to be firing them. Now then, here's your moment, then little drones. If you can have an effect on that ship, if you can either force it not to get to to go anywhere within range of, of caliber cruise missiles, or such that you're caliber cruise missiles are are effective Russia or you better even even better still you sink that boat then I will believe that this is a new form of of warfare so I think this is we're about to see whether or not this is more than um I mean it's not a story dreamt up clearly it it did happen but we all got very excited we hadn't hadn't really seen this sort of thing before imagery on social media we all go whizzing off going oh this is amazing look at these new new things we've just got to be really really careful about heralding a new a new age of military technology it's all down to the effect and and that's that's what that's the that's the, the grassy knoll i will um i will live and die on
3: well thank you very much for that dom roland is there anything more from you that we haven't spoken about uh, about your report
4: here i think i think to be fair to the naval analysts, i'm gonna i'm gonna have to um push back on behalf of the people please, i please. spoke to right there um so i mean i mean the people who follow this stuff tend to say, "Look, that that is a big effect, right? That's a strategic level effect. They haven't sunk any any ships, as far as we know. Perhaps uh the the charge isn't that big, but pushing the Russians, the surface fleet, back into port is a big thing. Yes, apparently they put they put another ship to sea today. Yes, that's a test for them. We don't know how many more the the Ukrainians have, but." this is different partly because it's such low risk right that these things cost um we think about 250,000 dollars that's that's a lot of money to me or you um but if you can get one of those through a screen of small boats and you can uh you know significantly damage a capital ship um then that's worth it um but also your political risks are very low um your human you, you don't you don't risk losing people um you can you you can basically shoot these off um without thinking about it and and the the point um i think the point people were trying to make to me um who thought that this was an important point in naval warfare was um look this has been coming for a long time so so okay yes francis drake and fire ships um and yes people have had radio controlled boats for um years it's not the first time um but actually everyone was expecting um, a moment when this became a thing in naval warfare the same way it's become a thing in 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 the kind of you know aerial warfare and, and the land war um, and everyone expected that moment to come in the Persian Gulf um, which is why the Royal Navy and, and the, the United States Navy have been training like crazy um, uh, for, for this anticipated day when they thought their ships in the Gulf were going to be Facing dozens and dozens of these things uh, launched by Iran, um, and and we're, we're really going to have trouble um, holding them off. Now the Ukrainians have shown it was not a decisive effect. Um, you know maybe we could go back if you we like our historical analogies. So um, let's say you know tanks on the Somme. You know big dramatic arrival. They weren't really ready. They'd been rushed into action. Didn't didn't change the the course of that war um but it did eventually you know the tank is the tank um once these things become um universal and ubiquitous um they're not going to replace capital ships because you know those are extremely complex things and you want people you don't just want to have unmanned floating hulks floating around the sea um but naval warfare has been moving towards this moment for for a long time um and there are implications of the moment arriving um and what it's going to mean for well for example for for the taiwan strait you know um especially for a navy that's trying to counter um an ace you know trying to counter a much superior foe essentially this is this is a weapon that plays to the uh the plays to the weaker more you know asymmetric warfare plays to the to the weaker side um it's something they can use to to contest um the high seas i mean apart from that you know i i take dom's point um they haven't sunk anything um they haven't launched that many of them um and the other thing of course is that this is largely a land war right it's um this is not a war that's likely to be decided at sea so it's almost peripheral to the central um the central battle um, but nonetheless, um, I'm taking issue largely because um, because because I, I also began some interviews saying, now, look, Francis Drake had fire ships um, and I was firmly put in my place. Uh, <laughs> so uh, uh, that, that, that's my piece on why this absolutely is um, a turning point in naval warfare or not, or maybe just an inflection point in, in, in the gradual evolution. Um, I think you can look at these things in either way.
3: Thanks, Roland. I mean, it's f- fascinating, isn't it, that this has been done by a country w- which didn't have much of a navy beforehand. This isn't this isn't the Royal Navy or the American Navy doing this. And so, if, if you're right that this is a sort of tanks on the Somme moment, I mean, it's worth just dwelling on that for a second. That it's the country that, as you said, lost lost its ships in the annexation of Crimea and is now thought seriously about how to um, how to combat vastly superior forces on paper and has, has come up with this. Dom, I know you want to come back on some of this. What would you like to add?
2: Well, I just want to. I will allow you an inflection point. Roland, I, I, you know, I'm, I am, I will wait to see whether or not it's a, it's a new model of warfare. And I'll just take you back to October 2000, the attack on the USS Cole at, um, alongside in Aden, refueling in, in Aden, Al Qaeda attacked it with a suicide-driven um, fast rib, uh, rigid inflatable boat, uh, killed 17, wounded 37. Okay, so 17 U.S. Sol- U.S. sailors killed there nearly 40 um, injured, that that was that was effectively the what we're talking about here, less the uh, less the autonomy, less the, the, you know, the, the not not having the suicide element of it. Um, now, that is a is a great is a great leap if you can get the if you can get the autonomy to work so it is an autonomous vehicle it's a drone you know for the reasons i mentioned before that if these things are just stooging along then then they are very vulnerable from the air if you can if you can see them and if you're good at sniping and, uh, and all the rest of it so yeah i am willing to concede that it is it is a possible co- co- inflection point but and of course, you can't cover everything all the time. That's not how the military works. So I'm not going to say, well, hey, look, if there's this this uh, cruise missile destroyer has gone out to or frigate has gone out into the Black Sea fleet, then it's then these things have failed because it, it's got out. Obviously, they can't. It's not like a net, you know. They they don't just stop anything going out. So I'm not I'm not saying that they should have have stopped it. What I'm saying is, if the Ukrainian army. Ukrainian military know that this thing is there in the Black Sea, such that they're able to brief it out to journalists. They they must have known hours, if not days ago, that it was uh, about to, to to set to sea. If they don't have some means of countering it, then then it was this was a moment in time. And to get wonkish for a moment, this was might be a demonstration of kit, not capability. Capability is when you've got it in. You've got many of these things. You've got the infrastructure, the training. You've got the money in line to buy more of them. You've got the the people who are working on the next version of it, etc., etc., etc. If you've just got one of these things, or just a you know, one group of a of a number of different a number of these drones then that's just kit it's a one one shot wonder uh, which might demonstrate the future but it is not is not the future so I've, i'm yet to be convinced but i want to be convinced i want to see this this uh, guided missile destroyer whatever it is that's apparently going to fire these caliber cruise missiles um i want to see it uh, held off or, or or sunk by these things and then i will be convinced well, thank you very much, Roland
3: and Dom, for all of that. That was absolutely fascinating. Uh, if you've got questions for for us, please do remember to to message. Uh, it's more than welcome. We, we take what you say and think about it and use it often to, to think about how we should approach stories in the coming weeks, and the coming days. Francis Dernley, uh, I'm sure you have some
1: thoughts on that and some final updates for us before we go to your final thoughts. Well, thanks, David. Yes, I thought I'd best leave Dom and Roland to it uh, as they got into all of the details. Although I would absolutely echo the notion that innovations that are usually made in one war aren't really seen until the war that follows. And so that's why you always have this really profound disconnect in the annals of warfare between the, the weaponry and the military tactics. So if you say, look at the American Civil War, they're fighting with far more advanced weapons that are made over the course of the war than the tactics that are still Napoleonic then if you look at the first world war then you see that they're fighting in trenches uh, but they're fighting with technology that again is 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 far more advanced than they're really than the, the, the military strategy and thereby that's why you have such enormously high casualty rates like you see at the somme but then as i say as roland was saying the tanks were were innovated in that war but they didn't really have their profound impact and reach their full potential if that's the right way of thinking about it in the second world war then you see the atomic bomb developed in the second world war we don't really See the influence of that in the most profound sense until the Cold War, which of course defined that whole era. And as they were saying, perhaps you know, the the drone warfare that we've seen in Ukraine, the real ramifications of that we will not see until another future. Um, So it's a very interesting subject and one that no doubt we'll get into again. Just whilst we're on the naval theme, I just wanted to flag one story um, that will be familiar to those who will think all the way back to the war, which is uh, Snake Island. So Regular listeners will recall that Snake Island was um, uh, real, a, a very significant symbolic site earlier on in the war because of a group of soldiers who told uh, the Russian warship, the muskva to go bleep itself. I better not swear on air. Um Uh, And it was believed at the time that they were killed, that this was their sort of departing message before they were they were struck. But actually, we knew we discovered later that they were alive and they were captured by the Russians. And some of them have now been freed over the course of the weekend. Twelve of them, um, including some people from Snake Island, some people from the Chernobyl uh, power plant, some people from Mariupol, and. We're expecting there to be some quite interesting interviews conducted with them in due course, but an interesting story um, that's just following up on, of course, a very significant moment in the naval blockade, which was, as I say, the the sinking of the Moskva and that moment when, which really summarized, I think, the the attitude that the Ukrainians had towards the invasion, which was to uh, um, really act in the most strong and heroic terms um, it, despite the incredible odds that they faced and hence why this incident of the Moskva being told to uh, go bleep itself was now on stamps in Ukraine and is used in in posters and all sorts it's a really um, emotive um, subject so um, there's that and then just one final topic which is um, well a very depressing one in which to in which to end really but I think it's really important that we do so um, I've been talking a lot about war crimes recently And uh, there's a summit today, a major international conference for preventing sexual violence in conflict. And there are dozens of survivors from around the world who will be speaking about their abuse. But of course, many eyes are on Ukraine. I've spoken already about the UN last week and documents that they've released into the researches that are currently being conducted into war crimes and some of the legal avenues that are being pursued in attempt to bring um, perpetrators of these crimes to justice. We published a piece over the weekend by James Cleverly, the foreign secretary, who wrote exclusively uh, for the paper about um, what. he sees the significance of the con- of the conference. They were bringing over more than fifty ministers from around the world as part of this. He, he's going to describe about um, and and give a speech himself, talking about how chilling um, the, the the nature of these reports are, um, and also as well uh, the. Uh, I mean, it's it's very, very hard to read, I should say. But we have a piece in the paper by Harriet Barber, who we're hoping to get on the podcast this week to talk about it in more detail, who's been interviewing some of the people who are going to be speaking at the conference about what they've experienced in Ukraine. And there are victims who are ranging from the age of four to over 80 years old. And I mean, as I say, I won't read some of the accounts. They're absolutely sickening. Um, but I would point people who are interested in this area of legal avenues and of war crimes to read Harriet Barber's piece because um, it's very, very striking. And just on the same subject there's been quite an interesting intervention as well over the weekend in an interview with The Telegraph by very important lawyer, Professor Sir Geoffrey Nice, KC. He was the lead prosecutor against um, Slobodan Milosevic, uh, former president of Serbia, of course, and um, famously was um, tried at the International Criminal Tribunal um, for the Former Yugoslavia between 1998 and 2006, the crimes that were perpetrated there. Um, and he has said that he believes it's Ukraine that should take responsibility for any legal action against Russia because the West could uh, quote, corrupt the process for cheap gas and oil and as I say in the interview he talks about his concerns that there are real risks of subtracting out any legal action to the international community saying that it could end up with Crimea and the Donbass being sacrificed for a peace deal in exchange for for energy benefits and so seeking to put the, the onus of the prosecution very much in the Ukrainian camp, as opposed to it being something that is internationally organized. So quite an interesting contrast to what, of course, we saw at The Hague with regards to Yugoslavia. So, as I say, an interesting um, piece that's in this space. But I'd recommend that listeners um, read both pieces because they're very, very interesting on this subject.
3: Thank you very much, Francis. And just for our listeners, it's important to say we'll hopefully hear from Harriet Barber and Danielle Sheridan, who've been reporting on this on this conference this week. So we will have more on this in uh, the days to come. So Roland and Dom, can I just have your final thoughts, please?
2: Yeah. Well, my final thought would be keep an eye on on Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's speech later today, where, as Francis said earlier, he's expected to give a very uh, a very full throated um, commitment to um, to Ukraine. I think this is necessary because it's. Been good up to now, the, the external support, I don't like to use the phrase Western because there's many, many other countries that don't sort of come under the nomenclature of West, but it's a bit clunky. But anyway, external support to Ukraine, uh, good in terms of weapons, good in terms of sanctions. But that long term thing, that credible promise for, for long term support to Ukraine is very, very difficult to to get over. And Putin will be sitting there thinking, yeah, fine, I can sit these guys out as long as I can hang on for long enough. And that's because of the way we, we do things. You know, autocrats can take long-term decisions. Um, those of us that live under democracy, we are we have generally sort of fixed-term cycles, much shorter-term thinking. If you look at the, the discussion around support for Ukraine that took place in the context of the recent midterm elections in the US, look at the discussion around what it might mean if uh, Donald Trump, comes back to to any uh to power look at what it's done to the republican party um so the discussion about long-term support for ukraine you can see why if the if if national leaders do not step up and say we are going to be there for the long haul no matter what and and then make back up back up those promises you can see why an autocrat might just think yeah whatever i've seen it i've seen you come i've seen you go i can sit this one out as long as i can uh hanging there for, for for long enough so these kind of comments from um, national leaders are very 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 important but are only worth it if there is credible um a, a credible sort of delivery of uh, on the promise so yeah it'd be good to hear what we think Richie shen going to say later today but of course that has to be seen through and it has to be um a party bipartisan or across the, the political spectrum support so that the the autocrats, such as Putin, look at it and know that this is going to be the position of the UK or of the US or of you know X, Y, and Z uh, for years to come. Thanks, Tom. Just on that point
3: about democracy and autocracy, I wonder if Francis, would you like to go next, actually? Because I know you had some thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, thanks, David. I mean. I- obviously many, many listeners will be familiar with what's going on in China at the moment. And whilst we mustn't confuse a spark for an explosion, I think it's fair to say that at the present moment in China, in Iran and in Russia, there is considerable internal pressure building up. And at the very least, the instruments of straight state oppression are being tested in those three countries at the moment, in those three autocracies. Now it's a common refrain. Uh, one often hears said about Russia, um, as well that the Chinese Communist Party uh, has an unspoken deal with the Chinese people that in exchange for an economic boom and all sorts of benefits to quality of life that they can hold on to power, that they have legitimacy. Now, I'd actually question the phrasing of that. I mean, it suggests that this unspoken deal, people have a choice when I think that if you actually have the mechanisms of state terror in place that are in place in, in both China and Russia, then I don't think you do really have a free choice You know, can you make a free choice if you have a gun to your head? I don't think so. So I would question the terminology that we use. But anyway, don't want to get too bogged down in that. Hopefully, we'll get Safira on to talk about this um, in more detail this week. But what are the potential implications for Ukraine, what we're seeing in China at the moment? I think broadly speaking, it underlines the point that we've made on this podcast many, many times, that despite appearances, autocracies are far more fragile than they appear. And when the tide turns, it always turns very quickly. Now, as I say, we mustn't conf- confuse a spark for an explosion. Uh, This could be uh, something that is quashed quite quickly and then, you know, we we won't be talking about it in a week's time, or it could be something immensely significant. We just don't know. But who knows, it could be the same in Russia one day. So very much worth paying attention to. Well, thank you, Francis. And thank you, Dom. Roland Oliphant, would you like the very final words?
4: I think uh, riffing off these points about kind of Western commitment and Western staying power. um, And we've talked A lot on the podcast about the importance of battlefield victories and what that means for that kind of commitment i've been having some conversations in the past couple of weeks around that um and this is just a little anecdote um that i wanted to share just 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 to illustrate how important that is so um i understand you know shortly before the great big breakthrough in kharkiv um in in was it september um there were meetings going on in washington about okay what does victory look like? And the consensus was victory. you know, we're probably in a war of attrition. Um, you know, the best thing the Ukrainians can hope for is, is to, to prevent the Russians from moving forward very far or, or prevent them from taking any more ground and, and slowly degrade the Russians. And that's how we get to some kind of victory. Um, the offensive took place. Um, the conversation turns on a dime. Suddenly people are saying, Oh, hold on a second. Maybe, maybe the Ukrainians are, um, you know, we we can we can really really win this in a in a kind of conventional way um now that doesn't necessarily reflect um you know the conversations in the white house the conversations you know in downing street but it's um it's definitely something you pick up on um when you when you speak to officials at various levels in 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 various places um in the west um and that brings me to, to another thing. This, this notion of, of Western staying power brings me to, to the, the other thing I wanted to say, which was, um, it's not really about this week, it's about MH17. Um, I, was, I was busy reporting it on, on the day the, the verdict came out last week. Um, and I was away last week. So I know I'm a bit late to this and I know you covered it. Um, but that was a really, really important moment um, when they, you know, they convicted three people for shooting down the aircraft. They have not um, ruled out further prosecutions we all know that you know where the line of responsibility goes um now a court has confirmed that it was you know go (laughs) goes up the line of russian command basically um but look the the point of MH17 is for those of us who were there looking at that field of dead bodies in 2014 thinking what the hell is going on how the hell did it get this way we all thought that this is where it stops right things things count the the madness has to stop no one's going to let this carry on um and within a few days we realized actually no actually nothing's changing actually you know the the war is carrying on um the west is going to issue some stern words um and it was in retrospect just amazing how little it actually changed as far as I can tell, maybe you know, in future years we'll find things in the archive that disabuse me of this notion. Um, but it's very difficult to escape the thought that if, if the collective West had stood up for the murder of its citizens when that happened in 2014, we wouldn't be here now um, talking about this absolutely enormous war.
3: Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast by The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can also listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, do leave a review as it helps others find the show to our listeners on youtube for reasons beyond our control there's sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload so if you do want to hear an episode as soon as possible it's available on your podcast apps please search for ukraine the latest on spotify apple podcasts or your preferred app check out the ukraine page on the telegraph website as ever you can get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk we do read every message We are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Emily Hill.
0: Selling a little or a lot?